Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere, where CEOs, leaders, and experts at building teams, companies, organizations, and amazing cultures share how to lead from anywhere in the world. I'm your co-host on the East Coast, Judy Bianco Mathis. And I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And we invite you to join us to Team Anywhere. Today on Team Anywhere, we interview Phil Lewis, founder of Corporate Punk, a consultancy based in the UK committed to a better way of making lasting, positive change to businesses. He shares with us how to have your remote company thrive and how creating social contracts around conflict is so important for creativity and innovation. We hope you enjoy this episode of Team Anywhere. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Team Anywhere. And today we are thrilled to have um, with us Phil Lewis, the founder and leader of Corporate Punk, who I'm sure we'll we'll hear more about that. And uh, welcome, Phil, coming from London. Thank you. Lovely to be here and to have the opportunity to talk with you guys. Fabulous. So let's start off with your company. I saw a lot of action on LinkedIn lately that it is the fifth year anniversary of Corporate Punk, which is always exciting. And I'd uh, love to know about your company, the name of your company, and what distinguishes Corporate Punk from other consulting companies out there? Well, I mean, thank you, and uh, and not least for the LinkedIn mention. So we, um, so yeah, I mean, the business has been going five years, and, and in a weird way, I actually count that as an achievement because, I mean, certainly in the UK, something like only one in five businesses makes it to its fifth year, right? So eighty percent of businesses will fail in the first right. five years. Beyond that, also, when we set the business up, it was like, as I said in an article I wrote at the time, it was this really this scrappy little outlier of a thing that, you know, had no money behind it. We had, you know, no, wasn't as if we had massive founding client or anything like that at all. It was literally at the time me and a laptop and some ideas. And, you know, those ideas were, and they still power the work I think today, but the ideas actually came from about, you know, came from my experience for over about 15 or 20 years working in both consulting and in the creative industries. And the thing that I got mystified by was I was routinely surrounded by people who had loads of energy, loads of talent, loads of good ideas, loads of passion, loads of ingenuity, and you know wanted to get out of bed every single morning and do an absolutely brilliant job for the organizations that they were working with and for. And yet, so very rarely did all of that energy, ideas, talent, passion, ingenuity, whatever you want to call it, become greater than the sum of its parts. And I became really interested in why is it that we build businesses that are that are less than the sum of their parts? Why is it that, that a lot of businesses aren't able to unleash talent, energy, ideas, and what, what have you at scale? Yes. And the answer to that question, and we can talk more about this if interesting, but the answer to that question ended up being far more complicated than I thought. It was to do with you know, how psychology works, what, how well an organization's led, what we do around structure, what we do around systems and processes. There's all sorts of different things that come into it about how we don't think systemically and whatever. 
And I got to a stage where I was like, well, wouldn't it be really interesting to found a consultancy that actually did what it said on the tin? Wouldn't it be interesting to found a consultancy that worked with other businesses to help them be um, their natural, brilliant, imperfect best when they came into work every day? What would it actually mean to start a consultancy that was about unlocking the potential of other businesses? And um, that's where Corporate Punk came from. So I really set out five years ago to create what is basically an anti-management consultancy. That was kind of the, where I started. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and to say that people thought I'd lost my mind was to understate the case, really. You know, I mean, certainly people, friends and family were sat there going, why don't you just go and work for McKinsey, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, well, I actually want to do something that makes a difference in the world. So, yeah, five years down the line, um, I'm really proud to say we've actually survived. And, you know, because chances, I think, were against it five years ago. Interesting. That is fabulous. And something that um, in a previous conversation that you and I had, um, you talked about, and I also saw by your website, all uh, the way you all like to consult is to go directly to the people. Because those are the ones that have the energy that are getting up in the morning and want to be creative and innovative. Well, I think it's I think a lot of consultancies are really good at regarding human beings as though they're like um fungible assets on a spreadsheet. Yes. So so they will sit there and they will go they see people as you know, I absolutely loathe the phrase human capital for example because you know, it, it, it sort of reduces us in a way to just being, you know, something else on a balance sheet. Yeah. Right. In the way that we, in the way that we frame it. And, and so for me, a lot of consultancies will treat people either like fungible assets or like robots wanting, waiting to be optimized, you know, and I don't know about you, but I, I rebel against the idea that I'm a robot wanting, waiting to be optimized. Right. I'm, yes. I'm a unique human being. Um, there was one in a trillion chance of me ever being born and there won't be someone else like me again. And that's also true of every other human being on the planet. So, so for me, if you're going to consult with an organization, look at the human beings you've got. Well, and this sounds so obvious, right? But look at the human beings you've got working for you and don't spend your time trying to look at the levels of the slow and expensive reform of systems and processes. I think when I look at management consulting, there is a whole industry that has just grown up around making business far more complicated than it actually needs to be, right? In general, if things are going well, it's probably people. And if things are going wrong, it's probably people. So so go go and see what's going on with your people and work with and through your people to try and help them be better. Um, and so much consultancy doesn't do that. Well, I'm thinking about how you and I first got acquainted, and it was through an excellent article you wrote for Forum entitled Why Remote Working Isn't Just for Li- Lockdown, It's for Life. And uh, what intrigued me in that article is you quoted several CEOs and how they were leading in remote environments. Can you share some of the key lessons that came um, from talking to them and and coming up with your article and summarizing? Well, I think I think if you if you there's been a lot of talk about remote working, and, and I'll I'll be honest with you and say I'm I'm not particularly. I think a lot of remote working articles um, fall foul of this sort of 
musings that can happen about the future of business right and you know what is what is the future of business and i'm not really interested in the future of business i'm like we're in the middle of this massive pandemic and we're also in the middle of one of the great economic crises globally of all of our lifetimes i don't really care what the office of five or ten years looks like at the moment let's focus on helping people today right and the, the problems that they've got today so my my interest in remote working i suppose comes from a perspective which is um what is it people need to know now in order to in order to bring the best out of their people given that we're not in the same they're not in the same rooms as them a lot of the time so what are the things that they need to be aware of now and i think the first thing to say is that remote working i mean we're talking here over well a couple of platforms but one of them is zoom remote working is not your office life via zoom right there are it is a fundamentally different mode of engagement for for some pretty simple reasons you know we can't really see each other's body language in the way that we would do if we were together we don't necessarily get the same and this is going to sound a little bit woo woo but we don't necessarily get the same energetic exchange that you right. would necessarily get our attention spans on zoom are generally a lot lower part of the reason for that is there's also an intensity to interactions that happen over zoom that you don't see in other um you know, in, in necessarily in face to face. And and it's also the the exhaustion of the new, right? For many of uh-huh. us, we don't really have we don't really have that all the time. So for me, I'm kind of interested in how do we navigate that? Well, I think we navigate that by being conscious of a few things. The first one is is about communication. So I would say, you know, any kind of remote working protocol you're trying to embrace, the first thing that you need to be thinking through is how am I going to over communicate with my people? Because yes. that that regularity of communication that happens in most offices is not happening in the same way because there isn't just that kind of improvised exchange that happens in most in most places. So so you know, especially at times of change as well, communicate, 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 communicate is like is like the foundational level. And I say to a lot of leaders, the job of being a leader, you know, I, I coach and mentor CEOs, right? And I say to a lot of them. You're just going to have to get used to being mind-numbingly repetitious, like over-communicate because because people don't necessarily uh, absorb everything on the first go. The second thing is to think about um, to think about companionship. So actually, outside of just um, the work stuff that we're doing in every single office, there's so much stuff that happens that is about building a sense of connection between you and other people. So for me, it's, you know, okay, I'm going to sound really British here, but you know, the British office tradition of making a cup of tea for your colleagues, you know, now I know it's impossible to get, get a good cup of tea in the United States, but let's just, let's just say coffee instead, you know, that, and the exchanges, the social exchanges that happen are so, so, so important to the functioning of healthy teams. Beyond that, I would say also, so if you've got, you know, if you've got communication and you've got companionship, the next thing is conflict. So this is not remarked on. And, and uh, Ginny, you and I have talked about this briefly yes. in another, another environment. But how are we going to handle disagreements when we're not actually together? Um, I do a lot of work in the creative industries, for example. Dissent and conflict are absolutely integral to, the, to, the, to one's ability to deliver good quality creative work. Well, it can be really hard to disagree, you know, on Zoom 
in a very public way. It can be very hard to know what happens if we're in conflict with others. And a lot of teams haven't contracted around how they're going to deal with conflict. So there's another issue that happens there. And then the final thing I wanted just to say is is around connection. So it's very tempting to think about connection, that it's all about are we, you know, are we available for meetings and how much time should we be spending in meetings? But I think there's a slightly deeper point to be made about connection, which is that um, which is that there is on time and there is off time in remote working. And the real value of off time, I think, is in the ability to think more deeply. Most businesses are really good at busy work. They get distracted just doing lots of stuff. And if you look at Cal Newport's uh, writing about deep work, what he says in deep work is this idea of we've got to be able to switch off sometimes and really think at a deeper level about what we're doing with our businesses. And again, remote work should be allowing us the chance to do that and isn't because we're just replicating the same old meeting treadmill that right. happens through Zoom. So if you go back to those four C's, we talk about the four C's of remote working. We talk about communication. We talk about companionship. We talk about conflict. And we talk about connection. And those are not easy things to master. But if one can master those and work out what it means for how you run a team, I believe there is a chance to build a high-performing team in a remote working environment. Exciting. Excellent. <laughs> Can you tell us more about the contract around conflict? Because I'm noticing that as well with uh, my clients is they're, they don't know how to have conflict, especially in a Zoom or a, a team, Microsoft team setting. Well, I suppose the, the first question I would go to, Mitch, is, is do, they, do they know how to have conflict at all? Because, I mean, just as a general as a general observation on coronavirus, there have obviously been some industries that have been impacted by almost like generational once in generational events i'm thinking here of tourism and uh, entertainment and hospitality for example um but there's a lot of other industries for whom what this pandemic has just done is shone a really harsh and unforgiving light on things that were already going wrong in their organizations right so the first question is are they are they are they good conflict and and a lot of the time what i think you can get into is that there are some real misunderstandings going on with uh, you know at the individual level sometimes or you know within leaders or whatever about um what conflict actually is and whether or not it's actually a healthy thing certainly in britain and i can't speak to the us and with the same level of authority but certainly in britain we are trained to believe that conflict is unhealthy a lot of the time mm -hmm. we're trained to believe that any kind of direct conversation is a conflict conversation and we're trained to believe that healthy businesses are businesses where conflict doesn't occur mm -hmm. so so when i walk into a business and go if you're not disagreeing with each other we've got a massive problem it sounds it sounds quite counterintuitive so i think the first thing i would say Mitch, we've got to really look at what the baseline levels of understanding are around what conflict means now psychologically the thing that we measure at corporate punk is we go can you resolve conflict quickly and for the greater good so what that means is are you able to move through it and could you get somewhere as a result of that conflict together that you couldn't get individually now if if that's the working definition of 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 what conflict is that's a much much healthier definition than the thing that I was just pointing to right and then and then finally you know we we do then a lot of work around 
particularly helping people to prep for some of those conversations. So again, a lot of Brits will really struggle with assertion, for example. We're very, very difficult to get into a conversation where we're going to be able to hold an uncomfortable space if you can't actually assert what that, you know, assert what you're thinking or feeling about something in the first place. So I think to your point about contracting, a lot of contracting, which is a very coachy and consulting kind of word, just means the way that things are going to run around here is really about coming back to the definition and about people permissioning each other, whether it's on Zoom or elsewhere to go, it's okay for things to get uncomfortable and let's work through this together and embracing that itself as a practice. Excellent. Beautiful. So that actually is a good segue to the other uh, question that I wanted to ask you, which is given your own tangible experience with remote teams and also doing tem- uh, seminars remotely, what techniques have you used to foster a culture, you know, beyond the four walls? I think, I think in terms of, you've got to look at what, again, you've got to look what the ingredients of a culture are, and we could probably spend the about 10 podcast length episodes yeah. talking about yeah. the ingredients of a high performance culture um i would find fascinating i don't know about anybody else but um so when you talk about building a culture i think the thing that i go to there is a couple of foundational level a couple of foundational points actually so so the first would be around um values alignment and the second thing would be about you know intellectual uh, vision and capital, right? So let me just talk to each of those things. I think in the end, um, teams that stay together and work well together primarily are teams that are aligned on values, right? Mm-hmm. So, so one of the most helpful pieces of business advice that I received was about ten years ago, when my he's still actually one of my mentors now said to me, Phil, if you if you don't share your people's or your clients' values, divorce is inevitable. It's just a matter of how much blood gets spilt on the carpet. Right? I thought this was brilliant because I thought what I actually heard in that was don't work with them in the first place because you're on a hiding to nothing. So again, I mean, to your earlier point, Mitch, about um, you know about how do we contract with with people around conflict and the baseline misconceptions that there are. And I was saying sometimes coronavirus shines a hard, hard light on you know, problems. I would say the first thing is go to values and our values aligned with the team. Now, if values are aligned, if we care about the same things, being building good culture in a context of remote working means we should go back to those values and understand how we now articulate them in this new way of engagement. So for example, if I'm really customer focused, like, like, Right. So I'll give you, actually, I'll give you a working example from our own consultancy. So one of our five values. So our five values, I can tell you, are integrity, excellence, care, mutuality and grit. Right. Those are the five things that we care about. So, so if I take the value of excellence, I, would, I can tell you how it's worked through in our business, which has been, OK, guys, the thing that we've been historically absolutely excellent at is mobilizing teams of people together, usually by face-to-face interaction with them in rooms, right? Now we've got this platform to work with. We've got really busy and stressed out 
clients because all sorts of things are going on. We've got any number of other things that are swinging in around budgets and so on. How do we continue to embrace excellence in that context? And honestly, those conversations that come back to value have a, offer a huge boon at the level of culture because actually what you're doing is you're reasserting all of the time what it is people have in common and what it is they care about. So the process of working through those questions about how we articulate excellence in our marketplace have actually helped to reinforce um, how we work together as a team. And then very quickly, the intellectual unity and the intellectual capital point is about ultimately do we share the same view of the world, right? Are we united at the level of we, not that we think the same thing, but ultimately broadly, we think the world is moving in the same direction. So all of our people at Corporate Punk will routinely go, we think that as time goes on, management consulting will need to shift to become more focused on people. We think that business success is around innovation, not just efficiency. We think that actually really good business is about, you know, money follows value, not value follows money, right? These are the mm-hmm. things that we think. If we all have that in common and we continue to reassert that, um, that really helps. So you see what I'm saying is not do yes. new things. It's continue to reassert the things that you have in common and that you've always done. I love that because it doesn't mean, oh, I heard about this cool technique that we can use. And so let's do it tomorrow on our Zoom call. Don't do that in absence of how does it emphasize one of our three to five to six values so we can always show that link. Phil, Absolutely. So, Phil, in um, when you're working with your uh, clients at Corporate Punk, and they come to you and they say, "Hey, Phil, you know, uh, we've been in this COVID thing for uh, quite some time. Can you uh, help us, let's say, dig deeper into our values in this new type of a um, off the campus situation? What are some of the things that you do to actually have them dig down deeper and figure out how to?" Um, convey and demonstrate values in this new world my number one question when it comes to values my the the number one go-to point for all of us is an organization doesn't get to redefine its values its values are its values organizations are just really good at um i was going to swear then but bsing themselves around what their values actually are so so a lot of organizations are really good at you know i was talking to a business last week actually that's saying we've done we've redone our values three times in 10 years and my point was, well, you've just never captured them accurately then, have you? Because, because you know, your values are what your organization deeply cares about. Don't really, they don't really change, right? And you don't change them by writing them on a poster that sits on your wall. So, so my favorite question around values, Mitch, is why have you fired the last six people you've fired, right? Because outside of instances of gross misconduct, businesses routinely part company with their people for values violations. Right. Excepting there's been some horrendous downturn in performance. People do get laid off for that reason. And they also get laid off because they've, you know, had their hands in the till or whatever. Beyond mm-hmm. that, it's mostly about values violations. Right. So actually, if you if you look at um, if you can go, oh, actually, well, we 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 fired Bob because Bob didn't really care about, you know, um, making sure the invoices were accurate. Right. And there was one too many mistakes. Well, that's going to tell us a lot about precision as a value. Do you see what I mean? Um, Or we fired Sarah 
because Sarah was a bit rude to a customer and we don't do that, that might tell us a lot about courtesy as a value or about, about customer service as a value. So that's the first thing. The second thing is then as a, as a, um, as a sense check is to be able to go, what are the opposites of the things that we think are our values and would any company plausibly claim to have those? So for example, um, the opposite of excellence in corporate punk land, which I was talking about earlier on, isn't actually not being very good. The opposite of excellence is being good enough, right? Excellence is going above and beyond for its own sake and for the sake of your standards being good enough is what the client so so and that's that is actually an opposite of that value that that a company would potentially claim for itself it could feasibly claim that so so this is the problem with values like trustworthiness there is no company in the world that would claim to be untrustworthy so the two senses are a so my two favorite questions are one why have you fired the last half dozen people and two if, if we think those are our values, let's let's double check and see if anybody would claim their opposite. You have to be able to say yes against each of those. Even just through doing those two quick exercises, you often get further into defining a company's actual values. Oh, the third one, by the way, sorry, is what have we invested in in the past, right? So what have been the things that we've invested in? Because again, what you spend money on tends to indicate what you care about. So a company that's actually routinely spent money on loads of R&D that hasn't worked is a company that maybe values innovation or experimentation, right? And there are companies that would value the opposite of that, back to my previous point, which would be actually about maybe incrementalism, say, or about yes. or about repetition. So do you see what I mean? So all of those things, I think, get you closer to what an actual values are. And I'm, I'm not interested in claimed values. I'm interested in actual values. You, Phil, I have never heard anyone explain it so clearly with three excellent exercises like that. Thank you so much. Uh, so you have been uh, on a journey yourself even before a corporate punk and uh what have you learned about yourself as a leader that has brought you to the kind of thinking you are today you know the evolutions perhaps that you've gone through i would say to you i mean i was it it was a process of doing and then undoing so for me learning to be a learning to be a leader and i i think it's weirdly i think leader is a word that should be used about you rather than you use it about yourself right so so maybe that's a maybe that's a northern english thing i don't know but i I struggle to self-define as a leader if you see what i mean but as somebody with leadership responsibility i was very young to that so by the age of 28 which was many years ago but by the age of 28 i was that was the first time i was a managing director and and I thought I had it all sorted, and then that business fell apart because I really didn't know very much, mm-hmm. and um, and then I had to unlearn a lot of stuff. And so I would say I would say a number of things come off that for me. One is that I think humility is critical to leadership, right? So and what humility means is really just that ability to embrace the fact that, um, you know you don't know all the time what you think you know or that you should know and you are going to make mistakes and you are humble and and the 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 world still has a lot to teach you and the process of learning is a lifetime journey and and I see a lot of leaders particularly insecure leaders who actually don't have that level of humility because it's almost like their need for perfection 
drowns out the ability to actually have any level of humility. So that their insecurity means that they need to present themselves as perfect to the world, which means they're not right. open to new learning. So I found humility to be the, the, the first thing. The second thing is, and a related point to humility as well, is is that um, I've just become really close to what I'm not very good at, right? So I don't really spend time working on my weaknesses. Working on your weaknesses is a waste of energy. You have to neutralize your weaknesses and work from where you're strong. And I'm basically only good at about three things in the world, right? I'm good at, I'm good at, I'm good at thinking up new things and writing about them. Um, and I'm good at sitting with clients and having conversations with them about where they're at and what they should do. And I'm occasionally good at standing on a stage and talking about the insights that came from the first two things. And in almost every other situation, I'm totally hopeless. I can't project manage. I'm not very good financially. Um, I really struggle sometimes to, um, to switch off from work. I can be very demanding with people around me, all this other stuff. And so actually what I've learned over the years is compensate for that right work on yourself which is what humility is about is constant self-analysis and work and i have coach mentor counselors who help me through that and then the second thing is also um the second thing is also build diverse team of people around you who can do the things you can't and respect their ability to do that rather than trying to do it for them and 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 those things honestly but i i really do see it as lifetime's work jenny i don't see it as being something that you've cracked by the age of 30 or 35 you know right you don't ever become learning finished or indeed leader finished yes yes um and, you know, you sort of I look at some of the most admired leaders in the world and, you know, people who've done remarkable things. And I think to myself, there's still a journey you should go on. Look at Elon Musk. This is not a man who's getting everything right. So that's human beings, right? We're all imperfect. And I think I think the embrace of imperfection is actually kind of like one of the one of the great liberating truths. Just embrace the fact you're imperfect and rather than strike this is what i hate about business schools by the way a lot of the time what they're basically saying is there is a gold standard to which you should aspire right don't be like that don't try and squeeze out your brilliance for the sake of perfection work out who you are and work from that place and try and improve from that place you know We'd like to take this brief interruption to thank our sponsors and then get back to our program. We'd like to thank Marymount University, Arlington, Virginia, School of Business and Technology, Innovative Solutions, Upskilling for the What's Next Economy at marymont.edu. Oyster Organizational Development, dedicated to higher performance, business success, and leveraging teams at oysterod.com. And WeJungo, a strategic people process consulting firm at wejungo.com. So, Phil, uh, it's a great answer. I'm wondering, when we were back at the ranch, as we say here in, in the United States, um, and you were doing, or many companies were doing pulse surveys, what happened now is we're all dispersed, and a lot of companies are doing pulse surveys. Do you think that there are specific uh, areas that they're now going to miss because they're using the same tools to figure out how the organization is working now that we're, we were not together in the same working space? My, my thing about pulse surveys um, is that I think a lot of the time, one, they're not examining the right things. 
And two, if they aren't what they're examining, sometimes they would examine the what, they wouldn't examine the why, right? So, so you know, and again, there's there's lots and lots of different pulse surveys. There is a danger, I think, Mitch, in talking a little bit too generalistically here, but I'll, I'll give you just the experience from some of the stuff that, that we've seen at this end, which is that, you know, the pulse survey might give you overall levels of engagement it might give you engagement scores for example but it wouldn't necessarily look at what the drivers of that engagement are now in our view drivers of engagement will be down to things like levels of vision buy-in within the organization or another driver of engagement would be um people having an appropriate level of autonomy in their organization right it's a huge driver of engagement um and and people feeling able to take well-managed risks is another driver of engagement. Now, a lot of pulse surveys aren't examining that. So consequently, what you get is you get this sort of thing that's going on, which actually might give you some clue as to how the organization's thinking or feeling, but it's not examining deep enough fundamentals for you to be able to, to know what those drivers are and therefore what to do about them, right? So I think sometimes you're almost better off, and this is going to not make friends in HR, right? But, but but bear with me. I think you're almost better off sometimes either ignoring some of that pulse stuff or complementing some of that pulse stuff with the actual discipline of going out there and talking to real human beings with open heart, open mind, and, and listen to what they've got to teach you. Because the one thing that my work has proven in, in the last five years in, in my working life, and, and my team would tell you the same thing, is that the vast majority of people go through work each day without ever feeling as though anybody's heard what they had to say, really heard what they had to say. Oh, which brings me to the other point, by the way, and then again, I'll be quiet. 87% of people in the UK do not believe that their employer does anything with the data that he that the employer captures about them and their experience, right? So, so there's your other problem. Not only is he not examining the right things a lot of the time, and not it's not giving you the why; it's just giving you the what to the extent it's giving you the what at all. The other thing is that no one thinks you're doing anything with it anyway. So, antidote to all that talk, conversation, engagement, genuine engagement, open heart, open mind, listen to what's going on, and. Ask the five whys. Ask any, ask any, ask any question. Sorry, ask why anything's going wrong. Why something's going wrong five times? You'll get to the root cause, of the answer. So, so that would be what I would say. It's like it's like get into the job of actually hearing what people have to say to you. Fabulous, and of course that could be done in this kind of environment um, right now. Right. I take uh, five, six people and I do a focus group right here on Zoom. And I ask that kind of give me an example. Right. Behavioral, behavioral. Fabulous, Phil. Oh, my gosh. This has been wonderful. We want to thank you so much um, for your insights that folks can listen to. And think about how they might apply as they're going on their own journeys. Mitch? I want to thank you, Phil. That was really, really great stuff. Great to get a a perspective from someone uh, across the pond and also someone who is is playing the same game, which Gideon and I are, which is this uh, anti-management consulting type of management consulting. And I really do appreciate it. Now I know actually what I do for a living. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, we look forward uh, to maybe speaking to you soon. And uh, we'll see you next time.
Thank you both very much. 